The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. If you want to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Mark this entire year. This, this is going to take us, it looks like it's going to take us all the way up to Easter in 2016. We've been studying the life of, and work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth in the book of Mark, the best place to go to find out who Jesus is because it's the earliest depiction we have of Jesus, and it's a very fast-paced gospel getting us to the point of all things. And today, we are taking a look at one of Jesus' most famous encounters with a person, okay? It's often called uh, the parable or the story of the rich young ruler. Now, we don't have his name in the Gospel of Mark. It just says a young man came up to him. And this story is important for us in several different ways. First off, the rich young ruler gets the clearest picture of the kingdom that anyone does so far in Mark's Gospel. And this is a big problem for us, especially in America, because when you talk to people, what did Jesus come to do? Very few people ever say he came to bring the kingdom. Most people only talk about salvation or talk about forgiveness. But Jesus came to usher in the kingdom. And in this picture of Mark, we get the clearest depiction of what the kingdom is so far in the Gospel of Mark. So it's important for us. It's the best place for us to go to understand what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and to live inside his kingdom. And secondly, Jesus is going to show us that there's two things that can keep a person out of heaven. 
right? Out of eternal life, out of the new heavens and the new earth. There's two things that can keep a person out of God's kingdom. And I think they might not be what you think they are. Now, as we study this text, it's important for us to remember the context that Jesus is teaching. We've got to remember what Jesus taught us last week. Last week, parents were bringing their children to Jesus, and the disciples were trying to stop them. The disciples were being a barrier to Jesus instead of a bridge to Jesus. And so Jesus got upset with his disciples, and he told them that the kingdom of God actually belonged to children, and if anyone was going to enter the kingdom, they have to enter the kingdom like children. Now, what does that mean? We need to be immature? No, Sam did a great job last week telling us what that means. It means we need to receive the kingdom like a child. If you have kids, you know kids are experts at receiving, right? They are never too proud. Oh, no, no, thank you. I'll pass that one. I've already got one of those at home, right? Kids want, kids receive, kids are experts at receiving. Kids know how to receive gifts, So for us, to enter into God's kingdom means to come to Jesus like little kids and receive with nothing to offer but plenty to receive. That's how you get into God's kingdom. But that, and we're all like, yeah, that's so nice. But that's harder than it seems. On the surface, it sounds simple, but today we're going to learn that it's a lot more difficult than it sounds because our hands and our hearts are always full of something. And today, a man walks away from Jesus because his heart is more impressed by what he can do and by what he possesses than it is of Jesus. This is both a frightening and a comforting passage. It's frightening to those of us who think that we have something to offer Jesus. But it's comforting for those of us who've been humbled to the position of a little child. And we realize we have nothing to offer, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We're going to jump right in this morning because I think we've got a lot of work to do. So I want you to open up your Bibles to verse 17. Chapter 10, verse 17. Open up your apps. There's Bibles, should be Bibles laying on the floor. If you don't have one, you can follow along with us. I want you to go verse by verse with me. Let's go. And as he was setting out on his journey, so Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem. What's going on in Jerusalem, guys? Do we remember this? He's headed to crucifixion. This is Jesus' last trip with his disciples, and he's on his way to be crucified. And a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? A man ran up and knelt at Jesus, and he asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is fascinating. First off, it's evident that the disciples have no problem with this guy coming up to Jesus, right? Right? Last week, little kids were coming up, and they were blocking Jesus. Or, oh, no, 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 he's too busy. But this rich, powerful, wealthy, popular man comes up, and by all means, 
This man is influential. This man is successful. He's a man who is respectable, respectable, and the disciples have no problem. They don't try to stop him. But what's interesting here and fascinating again is that this man doesn't come to Jesus like a respectable man would. This wealthy man doesn't send an emissary, right? He doesn't make an appointment. He isn't formal. He isn't showing the proper etiquette here, right? He's not standing in the crowd, patiently waiting his turn, standing in line, waiting to get to Jesus. He runs up and throws himself down at the feet of Jesus. This man has a clear sense of urgency. Though he's wealthy, though he's important, though he's successful, he's aware that he's lacking something. He throws convention out the door because he has a deep sense of his own need. His soul is in turmoil. He wants to know how to enter eternal life. What is this? This man is having an existential crisis. The things of the world, his success and his power and his wealth has not answered the deepest questions of his soul. So he sees this teacher and he runs up to him and he says, what am I lacking? What do I need? I'm missing something. I need eternal life. I need my soul satisfied. He wants to know how to enter into eternal life. He wants to know how to have his soul satisfied. He's having an existential crisis, and he comes to Jesus for some answers. Now, Jesus is going to show us exactly why this man's soul is in turmoil. He's also going to give Jesus a way, or this man a way out of his turmoil. He's going to answer these existential questions. And for those of you who are here this morning with those same, you're having that same crisis, right? Who am I? Where am I headed? How do I enter eternal life? How can I be happy and satisfied? Those, some of you are coming in with those questions today. Jesus is also going to offer you an answer this morning. But before he does that, he first needs to set the stage, okay? And this is, we, we got we we to start somewhere. And he's gonna, Jesus is going to start his argument or his answer with defining what good is. And it seems kind of insignificant. We all know what good is. But I don't think we do. I don't think this man did. So look what verse eight. Look at verse eighteen. Look what Jesus says. And Jesus said to him, "Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone." So G, this guy comes up, and says, "Good teacher," and Jesus says, "Whoa!" Before I answer your existential questions, let's start from the same footing here. Let's start from the same foundation. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now, Jesus is not saying that he isn't good, that Jesus isn't good. This man didn't know who Jesus was. He doesn't come to Jesus and say, Son of God, Messiah. He says, good teacher. This man was confronting Jesus like another good rabbi or another good teacher. So when Jesus says, no one is good but God alone, he's trying to correct this young man's understanding of goodness. When Jesus says that only God is good, hear this. Jesus is saying that God himself is the definition of good. 
God is always good. It is impossible for God to ever not be good. God is good all the time. He is the only one who always does what is good, right, and perfect. God is the definition of good. Listen to a couple scriptures here. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, the rock, that's God, his way is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Proverbs 18.30, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. So listen, this is important for us to start. And if you're ever talking with someone about your faith and someone specifically maybe who doesn't believe in God, it's important to define your terms first. It's important to start here like Jesus is starting here. What do you mean good? Let's define that. Only God is good. God is the source of all goodness. God is the definition of goodness. And if you don't have a God, you don't have a standard to define what good is. Jesus is doing some apologetic work here. He's saying, if you want to be truly good, you have to be perfect. Therefore, only God is perfect. But Jesus knows that this young man and all of us, we use the word good in a different way as well, don't we? We say that hot dog was good, right? And we know it was not perfect by any means. We also say, uh, like at grandma's funeral, right? They said grandma was a good woman. But everyone who really knew her knew she was not perfect. They knew she had flaws and she had a temper or she was judgmental. Or When we say someone is good, it doesn't mean we think they're perfect. So what does that mean? Our idea of good, it it, it lies somewhere on a continuum, right? When we say something is good, we have this idea of a continuum. But even with the idea of a continuum, you have an ultimate definition of what good is. So you can say this is good, that's gooder, right? (laughs) This is less good, Right? You have a continuum, but even to have a continuum, to make any judgment, whether something is good or not good, you have to have the ultimate definition of what good is. Jesus says that definition of what ultimately is good is God. God is that definition. So, now that Jesus has established the rules of engagement here, he has defined what good is, He's going to answer this question for this man about how to enter eternal life. And this is where Jesus is going to show us the first thing that can keep us out of heaven. And I'm going to say the most common or one of the most common things. He's going to give us two things, but one of the most common things that keeps people out of heaven, Jesus is going to give it to us right here. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments, Jesus says. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So Jesus gives him five of the Ten Commandments, and then he throws one more in there, do not defraud. It's a commandment, but it's not one of the Ten Commandments. So Jesus lists him. This guy says, how do I enter eternal life? And Jesus throws out six commandments. Now, I think we'd read those six commandments, and everyone, I think, in a just society would say, those things are good. It's good to do those things. Now, look at this man's response. 
Verse 20. And the young man said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now that's a shocking statement, right? I've never defrauded anyone. I've never lied. I've honored my father and mother. I've never cheated on my wife. Like, that's a shocking statement here, right? Now, would we say, this is a good man. I want you to think, if you walked, if you met this man, he's wealthy, he's powerful, he's successful, but he hasn't got any of that wealth through fraud, He hasn't been cheating the poor to get his wealth. He's been a good son. He hasn't killed anyone or cheated on his wife. He isn't a liar or a thief. Wouldn't we all look at this man and go, that's a good man. At least he's better than most, right? On that continuum, he's going to be up there somewhere. But then look at this next sentence. It's one of the most alarming sentences in all the Gospels. Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Jesus looks at him, loves him, and says, You lack one thing. Now, this is alarming on many different levels, okay? First off, that word looked at in the Greek means to look at intently. It means to scrutinize. See, Jesus isn't just looking at this man's outward appearance and taking his answer and going, oh, wow, you're pretty great. Jesus is looking into this man's soul. This this is frightening, That Jesus has the ability to read our hearts, to read our minds and our intentions. Secondly, though, so Jesus looks in, he sees him in his soul, he knows him deeper than he knows himself. Secondly, this is very powerful, in spite of that gaze, in spite of that deep look he gets, Jesus loves him, it says. He looks at him and loves him. Jesus sees this man. Can you imagine? Right? Nobody wants to hang out with Superman, okay? Because Superman can see through you. That is awkward, right? That is vulnerable, right? If you've ever been to a psychologist who knows how to get into your soul and see you in a place and say one word and all of a sudden you start crying and you have no idea why you're crying, you know what, you're, what I'm talking about. Or you've ever had to strip down the clothes and sit on the physician's table, right? Awkward, right? The physician's gaze makes you uncomfortable, right? Jesus is doing the same thing here, like a physician or a psychologist, but he isn't gazing at him in a cold clinical manner. This is full of love. This is a loving gaze. But Jesus doesn't just look at him and doesn't just love him. Please hear me, especially those of us in in this culture who have this jacked up, modernized understanding of what love is. This is your understanding of love, those first two things. Looked at him and loved him. Oh. No. 
That's not love. Jesus looked at him, sees him in his soul, loves him, and then says to him, this is love. You lack one thing. Now, why is that frightening? If you've ever, C.S. Lewis has this brilliant statement. He says, people who don't try to be good don't understand how hard it is to be good. If you give in to temptation within five minutes, you have no idea what it feels like to wait an hour or a day or a week or a year. People who don't try really hard to be good have no idea how hard it is. And this man has spent his whole life trying really hard to be good, so much so that Jesus gives him six commandments and he has the audacity to say, nailed it. Been crushing that since childhood. Talked to my mom. Never disappointed her, ever. That's audacious, right? But Jesus says, you lack one thing. And for a person who's moralistic, who's always trying to do good and be good to that one more thing, it's devastating. This was a frightening comment because this man knew himself to be good. All he ever had to do when doubting his own goodness was just look at the fools to his right and look at the fools to his left. I'm way more moral than they are. I'm way more successful than they are. I obviously love God more than that guy and more than that guy. Teacher, how do I enter enter into eternal life? See, this man was honorable, he was virtuous, he was a successful man, and he saw all of his virtue and all of his success as evidence that he was already blessed by God and going to inherit God's kingdom. This man wanted the rubber stamp of approval. In that day and age, to be wealthy meant to be, they thought you were blessed by God because you were wealthy. So he knew he was moral, he was upright, he was wealthy, he was coming to Jesus for Jesus to go, nothing, come on in, buddy. What do I lack? You lack nothing. And what's he here? Well, there's one thing. See, here's the first thing that can keep you out of heaven. Your own perceived goodness. Your good track record, your responsibility. See, this flows right out of Jesus' definition of good. He's already defined good for us. How good is good enough? Perfection. So if you can't be perfectly good all the time, then anytime you come to Jesus and you say, How am I doing? What do I lack? How do I enter eternal life? Jesus is always going to say to you, there's one thing you lack. Here's one more thing. Here's one more thing. For Jesus, you're only good enough for eternal life when you're perfect. Because heaven is perfect. So heaven is a place for perfect people. Now, if you are one of these people who try really hard to be good, you know how exhausting that way of life is. 
many of you are living that way right now. How do you know you're living that way? Every time you come to church, every time you read the Bible, all you hear is you still lack one thing. Oh, one thing, one thing. And you go, oh, man, I need to pick it up. Oh, man, I'm supposed to be doing that too? Oh, I didn't know it. I think I can do it. All right, let's do it. Let's make a moral resolve. We're going to give a little bit more. We're going to sacrifice a little bit more. Be a little nicer, a little nicer. I think I can do it. Every time you're around Jesus, what you hear Jesus saying is, one more thing you still suck at. And here it is. You just fix this one thing, you're good to go. And then once you fix that thing, you come to Jesus, one more thing. So that's the first thing that keeps people out of God's kingdom. Your own ability, your own morality, your own perceived goodness. But Jesus shows us another one, and this one is just as deadly, maybe even more so for us and in the society that we live in right now. Jesus says your morality can keep you from the kingdom, but so can your money. Your morality and your money are the two things that can keep you from experiencing life inside this kingdom. And I'm just going to push pause here. If you're a visitor with us this morning um, and you think that preachers are only out for your money and the church is only out for your money, um, we don't take up offerings here every week. We don't talk about money here every week. Uh, In the history of the four years of our church, we've taken two offerings. Okay, so this is not that church. We're talking about money today because we are going verse by verse to the book of Mark, and Jesus is talking about money. We're not talking about money because we want your money, okay? Just to clear that. Now let's go ahead and talk about it. This good man wants to know what he must do to enter into eternal life, and Jesus says, this is kind of funny, guys. Jesus says, you lack one thing, and then he gives him four imperatives, okay? I love it. This is what Jesus says. Look, look, look what he says. You lack one thing, go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. All right? Four things. Go, sell, give, follow. That's what Jesus says. I love it. You lack one thing. Bam, 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 bam. <laughs> but ultimately, it is one thing. Because ultimately, what's happening here is Jesus, he needs to, okay, th- what's the one thing this man lacks? He needs to treat Jesus as his highest good. See, that's the one thing he doesn't have. He doesn't see Jesus as the most valuable thing in the universe. So, what does this young man do? How does this young man respond to Jesus' loving invitation to enter into eternal life and trade his earthly wealth for heavenly riches? Let's keep reading. So Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Verse 22. Disheartened. By the saying, he went away sorrowful, 
for he had great possessions. Now this brings us back full circle. Jesus said God is the standard of good. That means God is the highest good, and therefore the highest good is God. It's God is the most, what, is, what I mean by that? God is the most valuable thing. God is the, the greatest treasure the universe has to offer. He's the heart of the very universe. He's the reason for existence. God is the ultimate good. But here's the scary thing. The inverse of that statement works as well. Whatever you see as your highest good will be your God. Whatever you see as your highest good will be your God. This young man saw his wealth as his highest good. It was his God. Think about it. He comes to Jesus with these existential questions. His heart is not satisfied. He knows he's lacking something. He's not living in the kingdom. He's not going to get eternal life. And he comes to the source of all life, the source of all goodness, and he says, tell me what do I have to do to enter into eternal life? And Jesus sees the man, loves him, and talks about his money. I'm just going to say it right here. So the most loving thing I can do for you this morning is talk about your money, some of you, because Jesus did it. Because it's the thing that's keeping you out of the kingdom. It's the thing that's causing these existential questions and these, all this confusion in your soul that you're not satisfied. This man... And then Jesus has the audacity to speak about his money, to tell him how to satisfy his soul. He answers his existential questions, and this man doesn't like the answer. Here's how you can be satisfied. Here's how you can enter eternal life. And the guy walks away sad. He's disheartened. He loses heart. Why? Because this man's wealth was existential to him. It was his reason for living. His wealth gave him what he wanted in life. It gave him power and prestige. Think about it. When you have money, you can eat where you want to eat at all the cool restaurants. You can vacation where you want to vacation, when you want to vacation. You can have all the interesting friends in the upper echelon of society. See, his wealth gave him comfort. His wealth gave him almost everything he wanted in life. But hear that. It's the almost that causes the questions. Right? You can take a month and you can go to Paris and you can walk around and it's all great, but there's still something lacking. You get back and you're planning the next one. You can buy all the greatest gadgets and all the newest clothes and the biggest house and the fanciest cars and all the little toys, but there's still something lacking. There's still these nagging existential questions. Why? Because money is a horrible God. Money can't answer those questions for you. 
no matter how much money you have or how much wealth you have, you will always be lacking something. Think about this. In good times, you will be worried and afraid about the possibility of losing your money. For those of you who have a lot more money than you used to have, you know how this feels. When you were first married and you barely had two nickels rubbed together, you weren't worried about losing it. Right? But as soon as you get a little bit, and as soon as you get a cushion in the bank account, right, you start getting really worried about the possibility of a stock market crash or the possibility of losing my job or the possibility of losing the prestige. Not only that, but in the bad times, when money's your God and you're living in the times where you don't have enough, you'll be envious and jealous of others who have it better than you do. See, money is an awful God. As soon as you cross it, as soon as you fail it, it leaves you. Now, the Bible calls this idolatry. Taking something that God created, a good thing, and putting it as your highest good. Living your life like it's the purpose, like it's the meaning, like it's ultimate. Thinking about it more than God. Going to it for your personhood more than God. This is so simple. What do you do when you don't feel confident in yourself? Do you go shopping? Listen, I'm going to just, this this is, might offend a few people, but I'm going to do it anyways because I'm right there with you, okay? Uh, I have a, everybody, uh, uh, maybe I shouldn't do it. I'm going to do it anyways. It's so weird why we want things sometimes, Right? We don't even understand why we want them. Now, this is a simple illustration, and it's just going to show how stupid I am, okay? So I'm going to use it. Everybody has, if you don't know it, everybody has these Yeti cooler things now, right? These little Yeti cups that, if you don't know about it, you're out of the loop. Sorry, but I'm going to put you in the loop now. These little Yeti cups, I'm just going to tell you, they keep things cold, and they keep things warm. My mom has one right here in the church. She's trying to hide right now. <laughs> She's trying to hide it. I just called her out. There's, he's got one right there. I'm just looking around. Everybody's got them. So listen, these things keep things extra hot and extra cold. They're great little mugs, right? And I'll just let everybody know they're $40, okay? Now, but they keep things really hot and really cold. And you know what? I want one. Now, here's here's what the thing is weird. I hate hot coffee. I want my coffee to get cold enough that I can slam it, like just warm and just down it. So the fact that I want this... I don't drink cold things very often, but I want this. That's cool. That's a cool thing. I want it. And I'm thinking, it'll take me six hours to be able to take a sip of my coffee in this mug. <laughs> but I'm in Gander Mountain, and I'm looking at it, fighting. Like, I want it. <laughs> and I'm like, why do I want this thing? Right? Why do I want it? I don't know. They're cool. That's why I want it. Now, there's so many things like that in our life. There's so many this just desires underneath the surface that are going on that we don't even know what's going on. When we put whatever cool is at the, the top, of, top of our list, or we are wealthy, or pros- whatever we put at the top of our list, it does weird things 
to us. It's using things to give us meaning in life. Using something other than God to find our personhood, find our value. And we do it with all kinds of things. It doesn't have to be just money and wealth, but Jesus here, listen to me, Jesus is showing us money and wealth are the worst. Money and wealth are the most tempting things to worship. They're the most tempting things to replace God with. What does Jesus say? Verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Last week we learned that to get into God's kingdom you needed humble dependence. You needed open hands, right? You need to be dependent upon Jesus. What does wealth give us if not independence? Isn't that why we want wealth? So we can be independent? We don't need anybody? We don't need help? We don't need community? That's why it's so hard, Jesus says, for the wealthy to enter into his kingdom because we trust, the wealthy trust in their money more than Jesus. What can deliver me from this state of sin, Paul says, and the wealthy says, another vacation, a new purse, a new car, another movie. What can deliver me from this confusion of my soul? And the wealthy says, let me buy it for you. But the wealthy know it never works. It never satisfies. And for those of us in this room who are thinking, I'm glad I'm poor. Listen. (laughs) If you live on more than $2 a day, you're wealthy. The majority of the world's population lives on less than two American dollars a day. So we are wealthy. We are wealthy. And Jesus says, how difficult it will be for the wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God. Keep reading. Maybe he's confused. And the disciples were amazed. The disciples were like, "Um, I own my own fishing business. I was a tax collector. You know, I consider myself wealthy. So the, the disciples are concerned by this statement. But Jesus said to them, children, and this is tying things back to last week, he calls them children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Look at this. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you've ever been in a church that preaches a prosperity gospel, they probably told you some foolish notion that the the eye of a needle was some little tiny door to get into Jerusalem, that a camel, it was a man door that you could squeeze a camel into. It was hard, but you could still do it. The problem is that there's absolutely no archaeological evidence, biblical evidence for that ever existing. It's a lie. When he says it's hard, Jesus isn't afraid of, um, you know, using a parabolic metaphor, right? He's not 
or hyperbole. He's not afraid of hyperbole. If I could say it right, hyperbole. He's not afraid to say, you want to know how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God for a wealthy person? It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. And what do the disciples say? They were exceedingly astonished. He didn't lower the standard. He raised it and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at him and said, with man, it is impossible. You can't earn your way to heaven by being good enough because you're not perfect. And you can't go to heaven with full hands. Now, this, this is, I'm going to take a pause, I'm going to pause right here because I really want to, I want to teach a whole sermon from this on parenting. Because I think we have two goals as parents. Ultimately, I think the majority of the people in this room, you're raising your kids hoping they're a rich young ruler. Be good. Go to the right schools and make more money than me. That's my goals for you. If that's you, Jesus looks at your parenting and says, whoa. Be good and make more money? You're not getting those, that philosophy from Jesus. Our whole modern educational system is to put in a child and to pump out a consumer. Go to college, get a good job, buy a nice house, take good vacations, be as miserable as your parents. Let's just be real. And us as parents are saying, I know it'll solve my kids' existential questions. More money, a better college experience, more vacations. Jesus says, the kingdom of God, the purpose of life is more than morality and it's more than money. Does your parenting reflect that? Jesus says, it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God like this. But it's not impossible for God. He calls them children. It points us back to last week. What were, how did children enter the kingdom? With empty hands, right? With open hearts, humble dependence. This man wants to enter the kingdom with full hands. He wants to worship his money and God. But it doesn't work that way, so he leaves disheartened. Please hear me this morning. If you're working really hard trying to enter into God's kingdom by obeying the rules, you're never going to make it. There's always going to be one more thing for you to do. But if you're working really hard trying to enter God's kingdom with your hands and your bank accounts full, you may never enter it that way either. So what's the answer? Verse 28, Peter began to say, him, say to him, see, 
we have left everything and followed you. Let me just tell you, that's what it means to be a Christian. We have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, true." well, let me just say that right there. This is the ticket. This is the ticket to enter into God's kingdom. The only people who enter into eternal life are those who see Jesus and treat Jesus as their highest good. Jesus above money. Jesus above family. Jesus above houses. Jesus above country. Jesus above children. Peter says, well, we did it. We left everything and we're following you. And this is cool because what Jesus does now is he's going to show them a picture of the kingdom. What does it look like to live inside God's kingdom? What does it look like to be a part of God's family, God's church? Look, let's keep reading. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there's, not no, there's no one who's left a house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, look here, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. This is where we get the clearest picture of the gospel or the kingdom in Mark's gospel. Those who put Jesus first, those who see Jesus as more valuable than everything else in their life, receive in this life a hundredfold houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecutions. For the pro- I just love it. Jesus is like, there's going to be some prosperity preachers out there who think this means if you give up a house, he's going to give you a hundred houses. So let me just clear that up. Here's what you get. Family, houses, brothers, sisters, persecutions. Put that in your back pocket. What's he saying? What do you get when you enter the God's kingdom? You get a family. You get a new family. You get a lot of houses. Why? This is the church. This is what it means to be the church. When I, go to Af- when I go to Kenya in January and I spend two weeks there serving the poor and preaching the gospel, I'm going to be staying in people's houses. I got houses in Kenya you don't even know about. <laughs> Different area codes, right? That's what it means to be in the kingdom of God. When, why do we do missional communities in people's houses? Why do people open up their homes and welcome people in? Because we're a family. We have new brothers and sisters and mothers and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus saying the kingdom of God is a big family. It's going to feel like a big family. It's not an event on Sunday. It's a family. Now let me bring all this home here as I close. Jesus is teaching us two things that can keep us out of his kingdom. Our perceived goodness, what does that mean? We need to recognize that we're not good enough, guys. We're not good enough. We're not moral enough to enter into God's kingdom. So we need to say about ourselves that we're sinners, that we're broken, that we're, we can't save ourselves. 
We can never earn our way into God's kingdom. But Jesus was. Hear that. Jesus was good, perfect. So he can earn our way in for us. And secondly, treating money and wealth like it's more good than Jesus. Treating money and wealth like it's more good than Jesus can, you, can keep you out of his kingdom. There are many people in this room and in our city that say, I'm a Christian. And what they mean by, I don't know what they mean by that, but it's not what Jesus, how Jesus defines it. Christians see Jesus as their ultimate good. Christians value Jesus above everything else in life. So for a Christian, let me just, let me just use this illustration. Somebody walks up to you with a baseball-sized diamond and says, give me all your money. I don't think you think that's a stick-up. <laughs> I got $5 in my wallet, right? That's a good trade, right? Whatever's in your wallet for that, that softball-sized diamond, why? That is more valuable than what's in your wallet. When Jesus walks up to this young man, he's the diamond. He's the pearl of great price. He's the most valuable thing in the universe. And when he says, give me everything you have, that man should have threw it down at his feet. But he didn't see Jesus as that valuable. And I'm going to say, I think many of us in this room don't either. And I would say, therefore, we're not truly Christian. Christians see Jesus as their highest good, their greatest pleasure, worth more to them than all the riches in the world. And do you know why? This is the key to this text. Now, if you've shut me off already, you need to turn back on, right? Because if you heard me say a minute ago, oh, here's how you enter God's kingdom, just give everything away. It's easy. Just give everything away. This is where you need to hear this is the point of the whole sermon right here. Why would a Christian be willing to do that? There's a word in verse 29 that Mark kind of smuggles in, or Jesus smuggled it in himself. He says this, do it for my sake and the gospels. What is the gospel? Do you know what the gospel is? Here's the gospel. Jesus is the real rich young ruler. Jesus was the king of heaven, the possessor of all of heaven's wealth and riches. And yet what did he do for us? Jesus gave it all up in a moment when the father said, go save my people. Jesus said, I'll do it. Jesus left the wealth of heaven to enter into our world to suffer brutally as a poor single man who was betrayed and murdered on a cross. Jesus did that so that we could join him in his kingdom, so that we could actually enter into his kingdom. He left heaven's wealth to come as a poor man and die our death that we deserve. 
think about that next time you struggle to wake up for church. Think about that the next time that writing that tithe check, tithe is an Old Testament principle that's giving 10% of whatever you make, and Jesus kind of affirms it in the Gospels that we are to give 10% of whatever we make to God and to his kingdom, to his church. We're to give it away to the poor. That's one thing we do. The next time you struggle to write that check or think about what Jesus left. Think about Jesus being the real rich young ruler who didn't hesitate, who didn't walk away sad, but instead entered into our sadness for us, left heaven's joys to enter into our sadness for us, to die the death that we deserve. Jesus didn't just tithe his riches. He bankrupted him. He didn't just suffer, he died. He went all the way to save us from our sins and to purchase us redemption. And Christians know this is the most endearing, the most earth-shattering act of love ever committed on the face of the planet. And you know that you get it. You know that you believe the gospel. You know that you are saved from your sins. You know that this has happened to you and for you when you see it as the most beautiful act of love ever committed, ever imagined. And this, this gospel, this good news is what enables people to put Jesus first. It's what enables people to sacrifice their finances and give it away. See, when we see Jesus in the gospel and what he's done for us in the gospel, it makes Jesus more important than wealth, more important than our own morality, more important than our own reputation, more important than our family. Jesus is truly our highest good. Has that happened to you? This is a shocking this is a shocking text. Is this your defining reality? Or are you, mo- are you far more American than Christian? See, this is why we need Jesus who dies on the cross for our sins, who sets us free from the love of money, sets us free from the love of the praise of people, And what does that look like for us? It turns us into joyful givers. God gave so much for me. Turns us into joyful givers. Let me pray. Jesus. You left. You left what we most want. You gave it up. If we were honest, we spent the majority of our waking hours thinking about how to be more comfortable, how to make more money, 
how to be more in control, how to be more independent. And you left that all. You force. You forsook all of those things. You just gave them up to enter into this dark, sin-infected, suffering-filled world to live a perfect life, a good life. To die on the cross for us. To set us free from the worship of lesser gods. Gods like wealth and money and popularity and prestige. Gods that never satisfy our soul. And you promise us, you purchased for us eternal life, ultimate happiness. You did this for us. Would you help us see it? Would you help us see the value in it? See the meaning behind it? Would you move our hearts to worship you like you deserve to be worshipped? The God who lost it all to save us. Father, you're not trying to pry open our hands to take something away from us. You promise here eternal life and eternal riches in heaven. You promise that we give up family. You're going to give us a new family. We give up houses. You're going to give us new houses. You promise to meet our needs and satisfy our soul. Help us see. Help us cherish what's truly good. Help us be people that have that eye of faith that sees you as better than everything else. When you set our our hearts free from the love of money and help us pursue you and follow you like the apostles did, left everything and followed you, knowing we're not going to do it perfect, but knowing that Christ's perfection is counted on our behalf. Jesus, you've done the work for us. We thank you for this. I pray that people would put their faith in you and trust you and believe in you today. And the believers in this room would turn from their sin, they would turn from their idol worshiping, and they'd worship the true God in faith and repentance this morning. As we come to your table to eat of your body and to drink your blood, would you remind us that we're forgiven? Remind us that you lost it all so that we could have it all. That you were broken so that we could be made whole. We thank you for this, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.